in that I was going to, to share um, after the fact that, again, as, as John had said, you have never heard that song before because he wrote it, and he wrote it for this service, and uh, we appreciate, uh, I always appreciate that kind of talent, especially talent that I don't have anything near. And um, speaking of talent, we have a number of folks have asked, you know, who are these people up here, some of the newer faces. And, and I started last week, I'm going to tell on myself, at 11 o'clock, later in the service, I don't know if John, I started to introduce y'all, and y'all had left the <laughs> stage. And I didn't realize it, and I turned around, and they weren't there. But, um, but, but let me introduce a little bit. Um, Chuck Cadillac is our percussionist. He kind of plays the percussion back here. You can stand away. Um, Sam, Sam Lindsay, who's on vocals, and he does bass and guitar and just many talents. And if you're here, if you've worshipped with us before, you know Christy McElwain, who's playing our keyboard and things like that. And then one of our vocalists, uh, KJ Hatfield. And so this is KJ. And, and I said to Tony last night, I was talking, because I want to make sure I remembered all the names. And I said, well, KJ, I remember, because Hatfield. And I was, and I was you know, joking about Hatfield McCoys. And Tony said, you're actually part of that family tree. Direct descendant of the Hatfields. So, you know, were they the West Virginia or the Kentucky side? They were the West Virginia side, weren't they? Uh, Kentucky. Never going to say I was wrong. But uh, anyway, so that's KJ. And of course, uh, my wife, Tony Schmidt. Many of you know Tony. And then uh, our contemporary worship, uh, worship arts, jack of all trades, John Godfrey. So, and being that this is, is our, our first Sunday in this service, official Sunday, it's good uh, to introduce. I just want to let you know that occasionally you'll see faces moving around, um, new folks up here, especially on vocals, Kimla Minor and Patty uh, McLean, both uh, also will be up here singing, so we're, you know, you'll see some different folks as, as the service grows and, and progresses and, and things like that. So we appreciate everybody uh, who's been a part of this service this morning, like as I said, that's been a, a few years in the making, and I'll save that story uh, for another time. But what I want to do, I want to start right into our scripture this morning, uh, which is in Acts chapter 26. And if you're new with us, I always uh, encourage you to bring your Bible. I always encourage you to bookmark your table of contents, because a lot of times we're in places that we don't always know where they are. But we're going to be in Acts, and there's always Bibles in front of you, or you can just listen, you know, whatever, whatever you'd like to do today. But we're going to read these words that Paul, the apostle, the teacher, speaks before the king of the region. And we're going to unpack the setting a little bit. But this is part of Paul's story, part of uh, his testimony, if you will. And I want to get right into what he says. And he's talking about himself. And for some of you, these may be very familiar words. For others, they may be brand new. But here, here's what Paul says in Acts chapter 26. He said, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities." On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission 
of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as, about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Friends and sisters, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, open our eyes to the truth of your word and to the power of, of your promise to each of us today. We pray in Christ. Amen. I'm going to start with kind of an odd thing this morning. Um, and I actually didn't get a volunteer. Does anybody want to come up and be a guinea pig this morning? Nobody want to be a guinea pig? All right, somebody back here. Who wants to be? Okay, come up here. Good, thank you. You are cancer-free at the moment. I didn't even know that. That's, that's, way, that's way better than anything I was going to do. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And, and keep those prayers coming. And that's, you know, this gives me a chance to say that's why in those bulletins, we don't always in every service read all, we can't read all the names. But they're there, and, and we want you to, to be in prayer for all those needs. Now, this is the test. This is a very simple test. This is not a trick. This is not, I haven't set this up. There's no gag here. These are two um, soft uh, cover books, paperbacks, if you will. And they're just, the pages are interlaced. This is very, very simple. I just want you to put your hands on each and just pull them apart for me. On each spine and just pull them apart. Ah, uh, see, now you're cheating. Don't bend them. Just pull them. Just pull them. Pull them straight. Just, ah, uh, see, now she's going for the cheat. She's going for the cheat. There's just paper. You can't pull them apart. Anybody else want to try? Okay, that's all I needed. Thank you. This is the thing. Can't do it. Two paperback books, pages interlaced. I have tried every which way without doing Now, when you start doing this, she, she was getting ahead of me. She was being smart. She was trying to. But if you try to just pull these apart, can't do it. At least I haven't seen anyone who can. Maybe somebody's going to prove me wrong. But they just will not come apart. They're completely, even though it's just paper pages, the interlacing of the pages makes them impossible to pull. I came across, actually, I didn't come across that. Let me tell you who came across that. Ryan came across that. Uh, Ryan is my Internet surfer. He loves to just surf the Internet and find funny things to watch and listen. We, we make him do it in the living room, so we always have an eye over his shoulder, not because we're worried about him, but because there's a lot of junk out there. But he came across a, a video, and the video was titled Bets, I think it was something like Bets You Can't Lose. And this was one of them, and this was just one of the kind of tricks, and I hate to even call it a trick because it's not that, but this is one of the things they said. You can take two paperback books, interlace the pages, and then bet your friends they can't pull it apart. And you just, you can't do it. Go home and try it. You cannot, if, if the pages are thick enough, and you get three books with ten pages each, you're not going to have a problem. But if they're, they're thick enough... You can't pull them apart. And there's a whole bunch of those, and we may have some fun with more of those. 
but, but it put me in a framework uh, of thinking, if you will. I started thinking about this a couple months ago, which is we love things that we can count on, that, that we can depend on. And that's where the phrase, take it to the bank, came from. You know, that, that phrase, that, that um, saying, if you will, is, is meant to imply that, that it is something that you can absolutely depend on. If I say you can take it to the bank and you trust me, then you know what I'm saying is you can count on it. It's absolutely dependable. And I started to think about that in the framework of our faith. Or the faith of, I don't even say our faith, because I don't know where you are today. And, and I don't say that judgmentally. But in, in the teachings of the Christian faith, and the teachings of Christ, what are the things that we can absolutely count on? The, the stuff that we can take to the bank. Because I think a lot of times we've created a lot of layers around our faith that are maybe important, are interesting for discussion, are interesting for debate, the way that we do things, uh, the practices, the songs we sing when we pray, when we kneel, when we go to church. And that's all good, how we do baptism, how we do communion, all of these things. And there's nothing wrong with those preferences, but they're not the essentials. I mean, they're just, they're just not. I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that when we get to heaven, the prerequisite is not going to be how you were baptized or how did you take communion or what kind of songs did you like to sing. That's our preference, but that's not our foundation. And I thought, how do we start to get to some of the foundational teachings of what it means to be a Christian, the kind of stuff that we can, again, take to the bank and that we can count on? Because sometimes we need to peel the layers because I think and I fear too often all the layers that we sometimes create, and I'll, I'll put me as a pastor and as religious leaders, I think sometimes they can do more harm than good. I read in the paper, as do you, you know, we, we see times when, when groups, it, there seems to me more prevalent, especially coming off of Christmas, that we have seen groups of people that are adamant at getting Christianity and faith out of the public square. They don't want nativity scenes. They don't want crosses on government property. They don't want anything that resembles or looks like the promotion of the Christian faith. And they are what, what I call, and this I don't know this sounds judgmental, and I don't mean it to sound, but they're kind of militant atheists. It's not that they don't believe. It's they don't want anything that resembles Christianity or faith, Judaism, you know, name, name the faith. And, and they get a lot of press, and they get a lot of attention. But here's the thing. I don't meet many of those kind of people. I can't tell you the last time, now maybe it's because I'm a pastor, maybe your story's different, that I met somebody who was just a militant non-believer. The conversations I tend to have, the people that I tend to meet who do not have faith, they're not angry, they're not attacking, they're not against Christianity. They've just, either they don't have, or very often in my conversations, they've lost their faith. It's just somewhere in the course of, of their journey, it drifted away. And they disconnected from it. And, and sometimes with good reason. No, not necessarily with good reason, with understandable reasons. Because they've been burned. They've, they've been burned by religious leaders and pastors and teachers who they have seen say one thing and live another way. They've seen use religion and faith for their own personal gain and their own personal power and their own personal recognition. And we all have stories of religious leaders, mostly men, that have abused and used 
faith for their own selfish purposes. We've seen that. I've seen it. And it's a prayer I have to pray myself that I don't fall into. But here's the reality. Let me, let me back that for a second. If you are a Christian, you've done that too. Just to be fair, maybe not to the same degree, but you've tried at some point to manipulate God for your own benefit. Okay? And, and this isn't to throw stones at you, but, but some of you, I mean, come on, let's face it, don't tell me because I don't want to know, but those of you that buy lottery tickets, tell me you haven't prayed, dear Lord, oh, please let this be the winner. Please let, and, and let me tell you what that prayer means. Lord, I want everyone else to lose. Okay, that's what that is. That's, you know, uh, I, I have done this. I, I go to Cassidy's cheerleading competitions, and, and I want every team to do well, but I want her team to win. And I know God, listen, let me say, let me, God doesn't care. God cares about the people. God doesn't care. God doesn't care about football. God doesn't, and I, doesn't care. He cares about the people on both teams. I always laugh a little bit when I hear players say that. Oh, we thank God for the victory. And I'm thinking, what does God have against the other team? Um, but, but I will confess, I have been guilty a few times when I knew it was going to be close of thinking, Lord, I, I want that team, the Cassie's compa- I want them to do well, but if a couple of those girls stumble, that would be okay too. <laughs> you know, and that's awful, and I'm embarrassed about that, and so I confess it as um, punishment. But I've done that. I used to coach Ryan's football team, and I'll tell you, I did a couple quick prayers from time to time going, Lord, that kid just broke free in the, for a touchdown. Let him trip on the way to the end zone. Um, <laughs> And the point is we, we do that. It's human nature to a point. But, but I, sometimes people, it, it has destroyed people and it's harmed people. And I read a, an article this week written by a woman, anonymous. It was on a blog and it said, why I don't trust pastors. And that caught my attention. And it was a sad story of, of, of abuse. And, and I understand that. So, so that has happened, and sometimes people lose their faith because of that. And sometimes we lose our faith because we become jaded at all the stuff that we argue about in church and all the religious stuff that, that we Christians can argue about and, and the stuff that, that matters, but it doesn't matter as much as sometimes we make it out to be. And so I have conversations with people who have, they haven't turned against God, they're not angry necessarily, but at some point in their journey, they've just drifted away. They've lost their faith. And I will tell you, so often they grieve it. They want to believe. They want to recapture their faith. They want the faith of their parents or their grandparents. They want to connect, but, but, but they don't know where to do it. They don't know how to do it because they've become so disenfranchised with whatever their tradition and experience has been. And see, I think that's at the core. Because while we may struggle against religious practices, religion, faith, is never going to go away. And, and this is why. Because deep down, I think at our core, we all want assurance. We all seek assurance. When we're laying in bed at night, and it's dark, and we're staring at the ceiling, we want to know, does, does God really care about me? Is God really there? Is God hear my prayers? Does God know my name? We seek assurance. And this is why. Because we long for purpose. We believe and, and, and hold to the, to the hope that in all our experiences there's purpose. 
I'm going to tell you what that looks like. I want you to think about this and ask yourself if you've done this. You know, when, when good things happen to us, we get a promotion at work. Um, you know, a, a blessing comes our way in some form or another. Most of us, most of us kind of think, oh, that's good. I, I, I deserve that. I, that. That's fair. I've never heard anybody really say, hey, I just got promoted at work or I got a raise, but I don't think that was very fair. You know, we, we accept those things as we should. But when things in our lives take a turn, difficulties come, tragedy comes, hardships come, what's the question we ask? Why? Why? Why me? We don't ask why me when good things happen, but when life gets hard, we ask, why me? Why is this happening to me? You know what that question implies? We are hungry. We are desperate to believe that there is purpose in our experiences, that even and especially in the hardest stuff we experience, that there's purpose in it, that there's a why answer, and that something's going to come out of it. Now, what does that mean? That we're hungry, hunger for a God who is above it and beyond it that is weaving purpose. Purpose doesn't happen magically. It happens because there's an architect, not causing but working through, and that is what we search for. That's what we seek. A God who brings purpose out of all of our experiences. And so the tragedy is we have this hunger on one side, and yet we walk sometimes or fall away from our faith on the other. And there's a, a disconnect. And I think sometimes that disconnect is because we've lost sight or we haven't heard. We haven't come to the realization of what the foundation is and what the extras are. You know, what's our faith really built upon? And that's what we're going to do today and for these next few weeks. What are the, the teachings of the scriptures that the Christian faith is built upon that we can take to the bank, that, that I don't think are negotiables? I think they're foundational. There's a lot of negotiables we do, but these are the foundational things. And, and to do that, we turn to Paul. And I don't think there's a better place to turn than Paul because Paul is the greatest influencer, really the architect of the Christian faith. Not the foundation. Jesus is the core. But nobody has shaped the way we understand the message of Jesus the way Paul has. third of the New Testament he wrote. So much of it is about his teaching and his mission, taking the message of Jesus to the world. He's had the greatest influence on the practice of Christianity. So it makes sense that we should go to the one that God chose to be that voice and to hear Paul's story. And that's where we read in Acts today. And, and I want to set the story really, really briefly because here's, here's Paul's story in a nutshell, if you don't know it. Paul was a Jewish leader. He was a Pharisee. He was an adherent to the law to the ritual and the practice of the faith. And he was an adamant. He was so adamant in his faith, in his defense of the faith, that he not only wanted to defend it intellectually against those who opposed, but he defended it physically. He was on a crusade to imprison and even to see executed those who would stand against the Jewish faith. And he was known for his strict, militant adherence to the faith. And in an instant, in a journey, the presence of God, the presence of Christ encounters him. And in an instant, his life turns around. And the one who was a persecutor of the Christian faith becomes a promoter, if you will, a proclaimer of the Christian faith. 
And those who saw it couldn't believe it. The Christians couldn't believe it. They were scared to death of him. They thought it was a trick. And the Jews of his day couldn't believe it because how could one who was on one end of the extreme so quickly go to the other? And so in his ministry, in his adherence to Christ, after some of his missionary journeys, he's in Jerusalem. He's preaching in the temple. He makes the religious leaders mad. A riot starts, and Paul gets arrested by the Romans because they think he's a foreign instigator. They think he's Egyptian. They think he's causing trouble. So they arrest him, and they do some things to him that you do to foreign prisoners in Roman prisons. Only to find out after the fact, oops, he's a Roman citizen. And there are rules about what you can and cannot do to a Roman citizen. And they go, uh-oh, we messed up. And that really begins a journey. And I wish we had time. Another time we'll unpack some of that. It begins a journey for Paul, where he is in prison for a long time. But in his, even in his state of being in prison, he gets audience with significant leaders to proclaim the message of Jesus. And that's what happens here. He gets to come before King Agrippa. Now, if you remember the Christmas story, there was a king who was uh, on the scene when Jesus was born. His name was King Herod. King Agrippa is his grandson. And Paul gets to come before him. And Agrippa knows his story. He knows that he was once this really militant Jewish leader. And he's curious to know what's different. And so Paul tells his story. And that's what I read from Acts chapter 26. And I want to just frame it in a few movements. And you can go back and read it in detail. He begins in verses 9 through 11 by telling the king about how militant and how just adamant he was to stamp out Christianity to put an end to this false religion. And, and he is on a journey, and that's kind of where he begins the process. But it's really what happens that I want to focus on. Because he talks about, beginning at verse 12, that it is on one of these journeys, on the way to Damascus, that he is encountered by the presence of Christ. And that presence appears to him as a blinding, flashing light and it knocks him off his horse. And there's a proverbial and a literal understanding of that. You ever been knocked? I mean, the, we've heard the say, it knocked me off my feet. You got news. You had an encounter. You had an experience that was so profound that it literally, or figuratively, I should say, knocked you off your feet. Most of the time, it doesn't mean we fell. It might have. But it means something significantly, significant happened that changed our experience, our understanding, our worldview, whatever it is. And that's what happens to Paul right here. This is a deconversion story. And what I mean by that is that Paul, we always call it a, his Paul's conversion, and it is his conversion to Christianity, but it's also his deconversion from another way of thinking, from another understanding and a worldview. Most of us have that. If you, if you ad adhere to a, a religious system or a belief or a worldview, most of the time in accepting one thing, you've let go of something else. And that's what Paul does. He lets go of one thing for another, and that's what is significant. So he says at verse 13, he says, About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell, fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm going to stop there. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is what God says to Paul. This is the phrase. Why are you attacking me? You can't win this fight. 
See, the kick against the goads, the goads were a cattle, like a cattle prod. And what would happen is, is the cattle and the livestock would be moved along and, and moved from one place to another, and they were using these goads to, to poke them along. They would kick against it, and they wouldn't win. They just hurt themselves. It didn't accomplish anything, but they were trying to push back. And it was a fruitless endeavor. They were going to get moved from one place to another. God uses that same imagery and says, Paul, you're fighting a losing battle. Paul, you have got this wrong. You are missing something. And I'm about right now to straighten your worldview out. We're going to move you in a new place. This is what he says. Paul asks them, who are you? Who are you, Lord? And that seems like an insignificant question, but it's not. Because Paul, in an instant, realizes that I've got something wrong. If this is God, the God who I have believed I've been serving, Paul's not unreligious, he's very religious. He believes he's doing the will of God. He believes he's doing the work of God. He believes everybody who's doing it differently than he is, is unfaithful. And so he thinks, I'm out there doing exactly what God wants me to do. And all of a sudden, God and the person of Jesus meets him on a road and says, you are going in the wrong direction. You are fighting the losing battle. And all of a sudden, I think in just a moment, Paul realizes, if I'm wrong, then who are you? I thought I knew who you were. I thought I'd been serving you. But if I'm wrong, who are you? And this is what he hears. He says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now you get up and you stand on your feet. As I have appeared to you, I'm appointing you as a servant and witness for all that you have seen and you will see. He says, I'm taking you, the last one anybody would expect, and I'm about to send you on a mission. And I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, and I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. I want you to hear that. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. God's not saying that they're bad people. God's not saying that they're unfaith. He says they're not seeing the whole picture. They're missing something. Paul, I'm going to go and I'm going to send you to the people, all people, Jews and Gentiles, all people, because they need to have their eyes opened. They need to see something. They need to understand something. They need to hear something. They've never heard before. The message is about to change. And this is where it all turns. This is the foundational point. Because right here, if this was a story you were completely unfamiliar with, and God is saying to Paul, I'm about to give you a foundational message for all people. I'm about to give you something that everybody needs to hear and understand. Our ears are going to perk up. Because we're going to go, what is it that God wants us to know? Is it the way that we're supposed to do something? Is it the, the songs that we're supposed to sing, the prayers we're supposed to pray, the time we're supposed to worship, when we're supposed to gather? What is God going to tell us that is so important that everybody needs to hear? And here is the message. Verse 18. You go to the people so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. I want you to hear that. So they may receive forgiveness of sins. Not they may go and do. Not they may go and earn forgiveness of sins. That's what it had all been about. Everything had been about how do we earn God's favor? How do we make God smile upon us? And the first thing that God says to Paul that the people need to understand is here's what I'm giving them. Forgiveness of sins. Now that may not be as profound upon you as it should be, or me. 
But I want you to understand what that means. I want you to understand how significant that is because here's something I can say unequivocally about everybody in here. At some point in your life, in your relationships with the people you care about, the people you love, the people that matter to you, you have fallen short of your standard of behavior. At some point in your relationships and the people you care about and the people you love, you have fallen short of their expectations and standards, for fair expectations for your behavior. Every single one of us. And when that happens, there is only one thing that can heal a broken relationship. There is only one thing that can happen that can restore a relationship that is broken, and that is forgiveness. When I come down unfairly upon my children, Ryan and Cassie, and I act in a way that is, is unfair to them, and I do, a relationship gets broken. The only way to restore it is to seek forgiveness and to receive it. And that's true in every relationship we have. And here's what I also know, that if you have sought forgiveness from somebody who has been unwilling to give it, your relationship has not been healed. It may go on, but it has not been healed. So when God says to Paul, here's what I want you to tell them. They are forgiven for their sins. This is what he is saying. I want you to make sure they understand that a relationship is being restored. That as certainly as we have offended each other, we have fallen short of God's standard. All of us, scriptures testify, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God says to you and to me, the first thing he wants us to hear is you're forgiven. Your relationship with me is restored. Here's our foundation. That brokenness doesn't exist anymore. And here's why that is such good news. So I've had too many conversations with people who have wondered how God could love them because of the sins they've made. How God could love them because of the mistakes of their past. And this is the first thing God says to you and to me. You are forgiven. It's about a relationship. That's the foundation. It's not about all, all the other stuff is great. But if your faith is built upon practice and ritual and tradition, you've missed your foundation. Because what God desires is a relationship. God desires a connection and says that those things that divide, I take them away. They exist no more. That's what we can take to the bank. A relationship that God invites you to. I don't know where you are today. Maybe your faith is solid as a rock. Maybe you're feeling the drift. Maybe you never had it to begin with. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you're given an invitation. Not about tradition. Not about practice. Not about preferences. But about connection. God says, I desire to connect to you. The first thing he says to Paul, tell him they're forgiven. The relationship is restored for all people. All that other stuff is good, and it matters, but not as much as this. God says to you, and he says to me, you are forgiven. You are restored. Welcome to a relationship. That's the first of our teachings, friends, that I believe without question that you can take to the bank. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your promise, for your invitation, and for the relationship and the forgiveness you offer, that we'd receive it freely 
with open hands and with open arms. In Christ we pray.